From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. First the virus, then the wildfires, how one Glenwood Springs business is coping. Then air quality is the pits, just as one school starts outdoor classes because of COVID-19. We'll check in with a Regis professor who's teaching outside. Also, why home COVID tests could be a game changer. The ability to, for example, send out a test to a student and say, you know, once a week you're going to take this quick test. And if it's positive, you stay home. And if it's negative, you know, you can go to school. Later, dementia and the pandemic. A Denver woman says the disruption of her husband's routine has made his hallucinations worse. He thinks there are other people in their home. He even wears his mask sometimes all day in the house because he doesn't want to give them the virus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are no fewer than 10 wildfires burning in Colorado right now, and they were fed over the weekend by heat, low humidity, and wind. The two biggest blazes are on the western slope. The Pine Gulch Fire north of Grand Junction is now one of the largest in state history. Meanwhile, I-70 through Glenwood Canyon remains closed because of the Grizzly Creek Fire. Kyle Jones of Glenwood Springs says that with the fire about a mile outside of town, he's not scared necessarily for his community yet, but he knows how quickly wildfires can change. And I've heard people say that fires burn uphill. We don't have anything to worry about. Well, I watched that fire race down within a matter of seconds to the bottom of No Name from Red Mountain, our vantage point. And I think that it can happen really fast. And Paradise, California taught us how fast things can happen. And what worries me about Glenwood right now is that there are two ways out of town. And we can't even get through a rush hour at 5 o'clock in the afternoon without the streets backing up. Residents on edge for businesses in the area. The Grizzly Creek Fire is just the latest in a string of blows. Aaron Zielinski owns Treads. It's a shoe and clothing store in Glenwood. Aaron, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And before we talk about your business, how are you doing? What does the air around town look like, smell like today? You know, it's it's consistently smoky. Um, Mornings are worse. It clears up by afternoon, uh, but it's ever-present. How's your headspace right now? You know, you just focus on the things that you can control because 99% of what's happening is completely out of anyone's control. Mm, I think that's a good lesson in general, given all that we're facing these days. Uh, how much does your does your business normally rely on tourists who are, you know, flying by on I-70? You know, it's, it fluctuates throughout the year. Um, I've often said it's about a 60-40 split with 60 being our locals and 40 being our tourists. And, but, you know, any different times of the year, like certainly in August, I would say that that is um, more evenly split. In July, it's more tourists, you know, in May, it's more locals. So it kind of just depends on the time of the year. But this time of year, not having tourism is a blow. Is a blow. Even much more so to my neighbors, my restaurants, the um, attractions. And so I imagine that the pandemic had had some effect and the fires are having more of an effect. So explain what the impact has been in total on your business. Oh, you know, I mean, it's just, 
I think the hardest thing is that there's just nothing predictable. Uh-huh. You know, um, you can't plan. You can't forecast. Retail, by nature, I future everything. I just am putting to bed my orders for next summer. Wow. So I'm predicting things based on, you know, some kind of known entities, some things that are consistent. And with what's going on today, there's really nothing consistent. So with so I'm I... taking a leap of faith and like elevating it. A leap of faith. Yeah. Uh, with I-70 closed, are you just seeing fewer people in your shop? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, and I'm my st- locals are staying home. They don't want to be out and about. They want to stay close to home in case something changes. In case they might have to evacuate, in other words. Exactly. I was thinking about your shop over the weekend, knowing that you were coming on the show, and it, it smelled so much like wildfire here in Metro Denver. And then I started to think about what the smell would be like where you are and whether the clothing in your store might start to reek of smoke. Is that something you're concerned about? That's your inventory. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's impossible to tell right now because everything reeks smoke. So I don't know, you know, I don't know how much is going to linger. Um, it's just one more thing. We still don't know the extent of damage from the Grizzly Creek fire. Hanging Lake has been on many people's minds. It's, you know, turquoise waters draw flocks of visitors every year. Uh, The U.S. Forest Service says the area immediately around Hanging Lake did not burn, but there may be hydrological impacts from the fire upstream. Let's hear from Colleen Peters, who works at Hanging Lake, about how she's feeling these days. Sad. Very sad, stressed. I love the canyon. It's my favorite place. I've worked, this is my second summer with Hanging Lake, and it's a job you just never get tired of. One of the hikers said to me once, you have a great office. And that was, yeah, that hit it. I have a great office. Are there other special places that you're worried about losing, Erin? I mean, not to sound trite, but they're all special. That's why mm. that's why so many people come here. There's so many things about this that are spe- special. But um, what I can say is our community is resilient. And although we can't recreate nature, nature is pretty resilient, too. Hmm. You're very poetic, Erin. Is, is climate change on your mind as fires burn across Colorado? Absolutely. You know, I was out walking my dog last night, and I was thinking about how long it's been since we've had a season without a significant wildfire in our community. And it's been more than a couple of years. And so, you know, this can't be normal. This is too upsetting, too distressing, too disruptive to be normal. So yeah, it's definitely on my mind. But it sounds like you have a lot of faith in Glenwood Springs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm grateful for your time. I know it's precious these days. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Aaron Zielinski owns Treads. It's a clothing and shoe store in Glenwood Springs. That's near where the Grizzly Creek fire is burning. Stacy Chamberlain thinks a lot about the air. She's a chemist. She and her daughter have asthma. And starting today, she'll be teaching outside. She's an associate professor at Regis University in Denver. And outdoor classes are one way Regis is adapting to the pandemic. Of course, that's just as wildfires choke the air. And, Professor, thanks for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. I think you're on the quad at Regis, where in about 15 minutes, I am. yeah, you'll be teaching a writing class this semester. Paint a picture of the setup uh, for you and the students outside. Um, so we have kind of a half half of a football field size area, and right now it's actually quite beautiful. Beautiful trees because Regis has an arboretum, ah. and we have lots of shade provided by a massive blue spruce. Um, so it looks pretty nice, and the smoke is pretty good today. And I guess teaching a morning class, given the temperatures, is uh, something of a gift. Yes, absolutely. How will students be learning? Uh, how will you be teaching? Because I understand that simultaneous to the outdoor teaching, you're also Zooming to students who don't feel comfortable being there. Yeah, so we have multiple options for students um, if they're not comfortable or they become ill. And so they can join a Zoom session. The Zoom session will be running on my iPad and uh, they'll be put into a group. And I made a, a, a box set up so that they could actually be out of the sun. So my iPad's out of the sun and it's kind of like a person sitting in their group. We do a lot of workshopping. So they'll be in groups of three socially distanced. We have enough area to do that. And they'll work on writing. Uh, today, they're actually going to work on meeting each other and building community. Yeah, this is something of a homeroom course. I just want to say that you sent me a photo of this makeshift podium that you made. So on Twitter at CPR Warner, you can see the two boxes, one of uncured Black Forest ham and another <laughs> box of, I guess, masks that you have crafted into your iPad podium. Are you nervous about, about projecting and making sure the students hear you? Um, I am not. I have a very loud voice. And in fact, it's probably <laughs> too loud. I'm more nervous about uh, disturbing my colleagues who are another 50 feet away from me. So I'm not. They might. But hopefully I won't disturb them. OK, so there are other outdoor classes going on this morning at Regis. Are you concerned about the air quality? I mentioned that you have asthma and that's just another layer to contend with. Yeah, um, I was really concerned yesterday when I woke up and there was soot coming out of the sky. But today it seems like the air quality is good. At any time, I actually can move to an indoor classroom that has enough uh, social distancing for my whole class to attend. But I prefer to be outside. Um, I often teach this course outside. Ah, so this isn't necessarily a new muscle for you to exercise. No. Um, this course actually lends itself in the type of community building where they can have a little bit more privacy if we spread outside and they can have more personalized uh, conversations. You mentioned the classroom that's available to you, uh, because my, my next question is what happens if the weather becomes inclement? Uh, and the idea is you could go inside. Is there good ventilation? Do you feel comfortable in that environment? Yeah, I don't think the ventilation is great. And so what I've done is actually purchased a fan and also a HEPA filter to be running in the room. Mm. Um, it's a big enough space, but I would prefer to actually have a little bit more air running from the outdoors to the room to feel comfortable. Are you worried about fall and winter? I am worried about winter because you just never know when it's going to snow. Um and then we'll have to definitely go back inside. But we have the flexibility of having an indoor classroom. We also have the flexibility of going to a Zoom platform. And I think um, if we can build the community in the first few weeks of the course, it will really help to get us through the semester so students feel comfortable 
actually in a virtual classroom. Yeah, that cohesion feels really important to you and that I I know that students, you know, who are sometimes paying full freight for a college education, they want that kind of bricks and mortar experience, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think Regis is a small liberal arts school and we really pride ourselves on being with our students and for our students. And it's a really good idea to actually, in this freshman course, build a really strong community for them because this cohort, they spend the whole year together. Mm. And that whole year turns into kind of a whole four years together. They become each other's allies throughout college. Once again, speaking to that idea that this class you're teaching is kind of a homeroom for new students at Regis. You're listening to Colorado. Right, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Stacey. Yeah, I was going to say, right, it's, it's, it's exactly like a homeroom where... You get to know the people really well, and you get to learn some writing, but you also get to learn how to be together in a good, strong community. Chemistry professor Stacy Chamberlain joins us. She is at Regis University in Denver, starts classes today, and she's about to teach, once she gets off the air with us, a, t- a class on the quad there at Regis. So I, I briefly mentioned air quality, and I know that uh, because you have asthma, it's something you're particularly concerned about. So you read some research on COVID-19 and air pollution. What, what did you find? Yeah, I- I did. I read some research that came out of northern Italy, especially from the epicenter in Bergamo. And it suggests that the COVID virus can actually attach itself to larger particulate matter, which is similar to what we would have in the air here in Colorado. Our advantage in Colorado is that our air is typically not still. We always have a wind. I think we complain about Colorado wind quite a bit. In Bergamo, the problem was is that they had still air. And so the um, likelihood of you getting a large dose of virus had increased. And that's what they think was partially a reason why people were um, having larger viral loads and there was a higher death rate. This is in northern Italy, which we know was hard hit. And there the issue was urban pollution. And the idea is that the virus could adhere to those particles in the air. I also think in our favor beyond wind is UV light, you know, which tends to uh, not be terribly favorable for the virus. So we're, we're still talking about the out, out of doors. But uh, does, does that give you pause about teaching outside right now? You know, it doesn't. Um, I think we have a good environment for teaching outdoors in Colorado uh, because of the increased UV light. And also the, the other risk that we have to balance, though, is if someone does have asthma, it can increase their susceptibility to the virus. But luckily, we have to wear masks while we're in class, and ah. that will definitely help with that portion of it. So even out of doors, everyone's wearing a mask? Yes. What a fascinating time to be an educator. Are you daunted? Are you energized this morning? I'm feeling energized. Uh, most days I feel a little bit daunted. I do think the spring was really tough, but now that we've had a, a go at teaching online, which is not my preferred platform... I feel a little bit better about going ahead with this semester and giving the students a good experience and a good introduction to college. Thank you so much, Stacy, for being with us. Thank you so much. Stacy Chamberlain, Associate Professor of Chemistry at Regis University in Denver, which starting today is holding some of its courses outside. When we come back, the race to develop a fast at-home COVID test. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. Researchers are working furiously to develop an at-home COVID-19 test, something fast and affordable. That's because widespread testing with quick results can help slow the spread of the virus. A CSU chemist, Chuck Henry, hopes to create what you might call a DIY test. He spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. I've heard about rapid tests done in a clinic where the turnaround time is under 30 minutes. Talk about why this kind of test could do more to slow the spread of the virus. So if you think about the process of going to a clinic or to things going to a lab, if you can do it at home, you cut out even more people that you can potentially expose if you come back positive. What could that mean for schools that are struggling right now about when to open, whether to open, whether to do online or in-school education? Yeah, that's a great example. And that's kind of one of the areas that we've been trying to to think about and target is kind of the reopening of of the country. And, you know, the ability to, for example, send out a test to a student and say, you know, once a week, you're going to take this quick test. And if it's positive, you stay home. And if it's negative, you can go to school. And if you do that enough, you can begin to isolate the individuals who've been infected and therefore reduce the potential impact. You know, the perfect case in point here is the situation in Georgia where 900 people are under quarantine after a school reopening because of an event. If you can isolate the people who are sick before that ever gets going, then you can continue on with not business as usual, but a more normal form of of education. And I mean, ideally, maybe you'd be able to do the test every day, but that's probably unrealistic, you know, supply-wise. Yeah, it is. I mean, at some point, there's materials involved in making these things, and and those have a cost. And so, ideally, yeah, you could take this every day, but it's probably at some point going to be cost prohibitive to do that. So let's just talk about the test. I, I know you're working on a few different tests, but let's talk specifically about this home test to determine if someone has the virus. Um, that seems the most urgent right now. Can you paint a picture of what that looks like, uh, how it works? Sure. So this test is meant to be very simple and easy to use. And probably our preferred format for this right now is that you would take a nasal swab and not the one that has been done a lot where they, they stick well up in the nasal cavity, but there's growing evidence that you can swab just in the nasal cavity itself. And then you would essentially put this into a little device that will look something like a home pregnancy test. That, you know, once there, it will extract the material from that swab. And when it does that, the only other step is to push a button. And then, you know, the test will read the results. And we're actually working on two different formats. One would be a very simple color type of change. So again, the home pregnancy test analogy here is quite right in the sense that if you're positive, a line shows up. And if you're negative, there's no line. The other version we're working on actually works somewhat like a a handheld glucometer for measuring blood glucose and diabetics, but read from your phone as opposed to the handheld glucometer. And so just different ways of reading out the result and different advantages to the two different formats. But that's kind of the, the level of complexity that we're envisioning with this test. 
And as we said, there's sort of a race to get these tests uh, out on the market. How accurate do you think they'll be compared to ones processed in the lab? Sure. So the ones processed in the lab are typically done using a different technology that will probably inherently always be more accurate and more sensitive. That said, we're trying to to meet FDA guidelines for both the accuracy and the sensitivity of these for any of the tests that go out. So I doubt it'll be as accurate as those laboratory tests, but it should be pretty close. Are any of these kinds of tests that you can do at home already available? So right now, the FDA still hasn't given formal approval for at-home testing for any of the tests, although there is a push in, in that direction. There are a few tests that potentially could be done at home right now, but most of the tests that are out there, even the rapid diagnostic tests that exist, require not only kind of a test strip type of system like ours, but then also an external reader. And so as a result, you know, individual wanting to take this at home would have to spend quite a bit of money to get not only the test, but the reader. And that's one of the places where we're trying to be different or offer something unique is that we wouldn't require any external reader with the exception of a, of a smartphone, which most of us carry anyway. How quickly do you think a test like this could get on the market? So a lot of these tests, it depends on where they're at in the development stage. So one of the tests that we're working on, we're already at the point of starting to run patient samples. If all goes well, we could be through the authorization process and one to two months optimistically, and that would allow us to begin to push some of these tests out. The other big piece of that, though, is also setting up the manufacturing and distribution pipelines, which is, you know, is a key part of this, but it's also outside of what universities normally do. Apparently, I've read at least that some of these at-home tests would require you to have symptoms in order to be accurate, and that leaves out a lot of folks who may be asymptomatic or haven't developed symptoms yet. Does yours require that people have symptoms for them to test positive? Yeah, that's a question we don't know the answer to yet. And that's part of the clinical testing that we're working on right now, looking at at samples from patients who have had COVID at different levels of severity, and then truthing those against people who have not had it. So we don't know yet. The hope would be it could work for somebody who's symptomatic or asymptomatic. And just to go to the issue of cost, pregnancy tests, for example, aren't cheap. How are folks going to pay for this? That's a, it's a great question. And I think that early on, these tests will be similar to the cost and maybe a little bit more than a home pregnancy test. I think that the cost will go down over time. I anticipate much like the COVID test right now that you would get through a, a doctor's office are covered under under insurance, that at some point these would be covered under insurance as well. There are dozens of researchers out there trying to find something like this. Does this feel in some way as a scientist like a race to get to it? It absolutely does. And it's, I would argue, a very friendly race. I think many of us are trying to work together and share what we're learning, I would say almost at an unprecedented level, to try to develop a solution for the for the general population that will help solve this, you know, or at least address some of the aspects of this pandemic. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Chuck Henry is a chemistry professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. His team is working on an at-home rapid COVID-19 test. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. 
And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the pandemic is complicating life for people dealing with dementia. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. I'm Jenny Brendine, education reporter at CPR News. Parents and students have so many questions about returning to school this season. School districts struggle with how to bring kids back to the classroom safely. Big city school districts and rural schools have different challenges, and the experience from family to family can be stark. CPR News is working on the stories that can connect you with how this school season impacts your family. Stay informed. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. The Democratic National Convention kicks off today. It'll be vintage 2020, a strange mix of old and new. Virtual, yes, but still a partisan extravaganza, including tonight's headliner, former First Lady Michelle Obama. At a time when it seems virtually everyone has an unshakable political opinion, we are touching base with some undecided voters. Like Sam Tober, who grew up in the Denver area, he starts classes today at the University of Miami, where he'll major in political science. I just don't know what to look for because I feel like so many politicians will say something that they believe throughout their whole early career. And then once they're running for a big position like president, they start to believe in what they want other people to think they believe. And so for me, that's what's a little bit troublesome for the Democratic candidate. And then for the Republican candidate, obviously he has his own issues. And I don't think he's perfect by any means. Trump's biggest issue, he says, style. The policies that Trump is putting out aren't that bad. It's just that his demeanor and his manner of going about his business to me just in some ways I think if he could just delete Twitter and shut his mouth that he would actually be a lot of people would actually like him it's just he seems like he can't help himself. Sam Tober thinks one of Trump's strengths was his handling of the economy until the pandemic hit. Tober said he likes what he sees as Biden's moderate positions on the issues and his choice of California Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. The possible downside is what Tober views as the Democrats changing positions on issues over the years, including gay marriage. He doesn't want to see that happen if Biden becomes president. My hopes and my reservations, I guess, are just that he doesn't become motivated or convinced by some of these very far left-leaning individuals like AOC and Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I hope those policies aren't his groundwork for his campaign and for his presidency, because I think we need somebody that is able to just sort of calm our country down. And I think that's something that I see in Joe Biden is he kind of has like that calming demeanor. This week's convention and the Republicans next week are less important to Tober than the upcoming presidential and vice presidential debates. The first of those is scheduled for September 29th. The VP debate will be October 7th. Tomorrow, a Denver woman who's not sure that either of the major party candidates will be the right choice for her. We'd love to hear from more undecided voters. Email us, coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. Pandemic life can be isolating, disorienting. Those feelings are magnified for people with dementia and for their caregivers. 
Here's Denise Bandel of Broomfield describing what happened at her mother's assisted living facility when the routine changed overnight. They closed the dining room, the activities, that meant exercise, the hair salon, the the field trips. They were all to be in their room, and they were served meals in their room. All visitors were not allowed in the facility. You could window visit or you could arrange a visit at a window if your parent or whoever relative lived on an upper floor. Those rules, of course, are meant to prevent the spread of COVID-19, but they complicate life with dementia, as we're going to hear from Amelia Schaefer of the Alzheimer's Association and Jay Caphart of Denver, whose husband has dementia. She cares for him at home, and welcome to you both. Thank you. Pleasure. Jay, what's it like for you caring for your husband at home, you know, when suddenly you were asked to isolate because of COVID-19? Actually, I've been taking care of him at home for a couple of years, so being isolated isn't a major change, except we can't even go out and do errands or some other things that I had him involved in, like, you know, an exercise place or getting a massage, things like that. And he went to a day center. And so he went to now a day we center. have the day center is on Zoom. Uh, is that effective, that connection over Zoom? Oh, yes, I like it for him to be social, and he likes it. Sometimes he looks behind the computer or if we're on an iPad to see if the people are back there. Before we have, you know, a chat or something with somebody, he is all getting dressed and leaving the house and locking the door because he thinks we're going somewhere to see them. Hmm. But he's easy right now to, you know, redirect. Communication skills are very good. So, you know, we're okay. I think we are. But I have no choice. You have no choice. Does does the pandemic make respite care more difficult, bringing people in who could help you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't have anybody in. And then if I did have somebody in, where am I going to go? You know, so what am I going to go, sit in the bedroom while they spend some time with him? I can spend time in the bedroom anyhow. (laughs) So no, it's, it's definitely different and difficult. Had you had some respite care before the pandemic? Yes. Uh I had somebody that came and took him to lunch one day a week. I found a driver because he he wrote a book on fishing in Colorado and all the high mountain lakes. So I found somebody that could drive him to some of the lakes once in a while because he missed that a lot. Hmm. Um, And then he went to a day center for a whole day. And so we don't have those kinds of things. Your husband has what's called Lewy body disease. It's different from Alzheimer's, but it is a form of dementia. And uh, do you feel that your husband's condition has gotten worse? Very much so, but especially with um, hallucinations and delusions. So he used to always, you know, might see an animal like, oh, look at the kitty under the table. You know, and I go, oh, he's probably looking to get his way out, blah, blah, blah. But now he's having delusion, and it's been the same delusion for maybe a couple months. So he thinks there are a lot of men in the house, a few women sometimes, and children. Um, he's actually thinks he's working with them and he works at the computer and talks to them all day long. And he's an introvert. He's never talked to me as much as he talks to these people. If we see a friend, he'll tell that, you know, like we just started having people come over on our patio and, and he'll tell them about these people that come over and what he's doing with them. And until I come in and say something like, yeah, but they irritate him because they don't talk or they can come and go. At will, you know, and he doesn't know how they get in and outside the walls or whatever they do, or they climb into the printer. I might find him taking the printer apart. 
And that's the only way people know that that he is really having people over. Now, I want to say that hallucinations are associated with Lewy body disease. Do you think that this is just the disease's progression, or do you think that the conditions of the pandemic had have made his condition worse? I think there was some progression. You know, we did see it right before the pandemic, you know, that he saw somebody on TV and they had a hamburger, you know, on their face, you know, coming off their cheek. That's a little different than what this is now where these people, you know, definitely got worse when the pandemic started. Definitely. He even wears his mask sometimes all day in the house because he doesn't want to give them the virus. Oh, he doesn't want to give the hallucinations the virus. Yes, these people. Yes. Now, Jay, you sound so matter-of-fact about this, and I I imagine that's because you live with it every hour of every day, every minute of every day. But how is this for you as his caregiver? It keeps me on my toes, and it keeps me off balance. Because something about Louie body is that they can get better, and then the next time they're totally confused. They they don't even know that he'll get lost going to the bathroom and walk into the kitchen. Yet then he can go and take a shower and shave. You know, the next day he's asking me, what you know, what is this? And he's looking at the soap and what is it for? And it keeps me off balance. Yeah, I mean, I, what strikes me about your story is that the pandemic is already unmooring. It already, you know, has knocked us off our balance. And then you're dealing with a disease in your husband that has a very similar effect. Are there times that you just want to run from the house? Oh, not exactly. Yes, probably. I want to run from my life. You know, it's like, oh, my God, is this is what it's going to be like. And I'm going to be stuck in the house having to do everything like this, you know, forever. But, um... I, 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 I think I'm, I, since I don't deal with my feelings very well, I think that pays off for me now. So I can just bounce back and take care of things. Huh. Does that mean you bury them? Well, we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you do have a... I really don't think so. Uh-huh. I, I really don't think I'm burying them. That's not usually what I do. You because do... I tell everybody about it. So, no. I And I do have friends. I make sure I call somebody every day. Mm. I make sure that he also talks to somebody every day. We work out. We work out three times a week. You know, he walks the dog, and I let him walk the dog by himself outside. He hasn't, you know, wandered off or gotten lost. You've tried to create some routine in a situation where that's more difficult. I want to bring in Amelia Schaefer of the Alzheimer's Association, Colorado Director, uh, help us understand, Amelia, the connection between the loss of routine and the progression or the difficulty of dementia. What, what's the connection there? Yeah, well, I think one of the big things is that people with dementia, like Lewy body and also Alzheimer's, they are looking for routine so that they can be successful in their day. Because for you and I, we, we even probably like our routine, Ryan. Yeah. But for someone with dementia, they rely, they rely on it because they're not able to form new memories. And so to be able to form new routines is really, really challenging. So that's why keeping someone in a routine that's similar to what it used to be in life 
often helps them function better. It helps relieve anxiety. Now, when I talk about these, these are generalities, obviously. Uh-huh. But, you know, I think we hear from caregivers and we hear from people themselves um, who are living with early-stage Alzheimer's and other dementias that having a routine and a knowing what's going to happen next is really helpful for them. So having something like a pandem- pandemic come into life really makes it challenging because they're not able to necessarily cope and form a brand new routine. Now, I think of the pandemic accentuating emotions. I mean, uh, I've found myself in the lowest of lows and I guess sometimes the highest of highs. And I also think that in certain cases, dementia can come with very intense reactions, very intense emotions. Uh, Do you think that's part of the picture here? I do think so. I mean, I think that we're all going through this together where we're experiencing the uncertainties and the questions and what we knew last month is different than what we'll know next month. I think the biggest difference is we hopefully have coping skills for individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia. Their coping skills often start to disappear. So what we see is a reaction that's based on raw emotion. They're not able to filter it through abstract thinking or um, thinking about how things might be okay. And so often what you see is just the gut reaction that most of us are feeling, Mm. but um, they're not hiding it. You know, what, what people feel, you see it in them often. Now, this isn't true for everyone because there are some dementias where people don't express a lot of emotion. Actually, for some people, when something happens that, that a caregiver would expect to have a, a pretty big emotion, yeah. they don't see the emotion. So it's very tough to predict, but what we know for sure is for people with Alzheimer's and other dementias, it's really tough to regulate emotions. So it makes it extremely tough on caregivers like Jay um, because they are having to navigate not only their own emotions but then have to navigate the person they love. That, to me, is what makes caregiving, one of the things that makes caregiving so challenging. Here's how Denise Vandal describes her mother's intensified emotions these days. When COVID started, I'd say after a couple of weeks of my mom being very isolated, there would be days where my mom, they would call and say, my mom's crying and they don't know why, and she couldn't tell me. But the tears and the crying has become almost a daily event. So emotionally, it has affected my mom greatly. You know, I was going to say when she was talking about the emotions. Yeah. And, you know, living with somebody in the house, you know, you might be watching something and start laughing and you want to laugh together. You know, you miss your partner Mm -hmm. because he's not laughing with me. Or another time, you know, or maybe I'll, you know, share something that's terrible that just happened and he acts like he doesn't care. So you you miss this other person that you've lived with all your life and that person isn't there in the same way. All right. I think to this point, Amelia Schaefer of the Alzheimer's Association, it's very easy to feel hopeless. Um, There's been a lot that we've heard that's very difficult. Where is the support? Where are the rays of hope at this moment? Anytime I think things aren't looking great, I talk to an Alzheimer's and dementia caregiver because these are the most resilient people. They are here to help one another. You know, we have about 90 support groups across the state in Colorado. They're all virtual right now. And so people are checking in. How are you doing? We know that something was going to be happening last month. Tell us how it went. I mean, really just to have that connection from others and to not have to explain one word, but everyone 
in your support group knows what you're going through. It, it, there's a power in that, and there is a hope in that, because what it means is that you're not alone and you're not the only one. I think the other thing is, you know, research offers a lot of hope. There was just a, a huge international research conference. Over 30,000 people attended the virtual event a couple weeks ago. And it's amazing because we have more research funding right now for Alzheimer's and other dementias like Lewy body than we ever have. And so as we accumulate more knowledge and understanding about the disease processes, we know we are marching closer to a day when we'll find our first survivor of Alzheimer's, our first survivor of Lewy body, our first survivor of some of these other dementias that right now are fatal diagnoses. So that hope is through connections with people. It's through the belief in science and the support of science. And I think it's also just looking at the resilience of, of each other. Now, what about respite care? Is I mean, we're all assessing risks, right? Um, is there any scenario uh, under which you can imagine a close family member or a trusted employee or worker uh, could provide some relief? Yeah. When I talk to the senior care world, I know many of them are approaching things differently. Now, adult day centers, they closed immediately because it was a congregating of multiple people in and out. However, home care, where you have someone come into your home, that I believe has been going, at least it's been going much longer. I don't, it may have stopped for a bit. And many of the home care companies where someone can come in and be with a person with Alzheimer's and dementia are practicing the same kind of practices the CDC would recommend. And so in that case, and certainly with families, I think that there are some general precautions we can take. I think we're all figuring out how to be as safe as possible but also how to continue to live because our emotional well-being is important as well. You know, the depression and anxiety we're seeing, that's something we have to address. And so I think that for every one of us, and, and we, we say this to Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers as well, you have to really assess the risk, do your best to mitigate every risk possible, but also there are some ways to do this that can be safe and can be much better uh, experience for the person, the caregiver, and family. Chris, money is a question. Um, Jay, do you want to weigh in here? The money, my big concern is I have no idea how anybody sends anybody to assisted living. I don't think people realize it's 6000 to $12,000 a month. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a month. So when people tell me that they have somebody in assisted living, I always want to know how they did it. That's $100,000 a year. Amelia, do you have some fear that in the midst of the pandemic, people who have dementia may not get diagnosed as quickly as they otherwise would? I do. I mean, I think that we've seen that with many health conditions. You know, we've seen many people delay seeing a doctor, going to a hospital. Um, And so the same is true with Alzheimer's and dementia. However, one of the things I'll tell you is that we already saw this as a public health issue because the statistics we know are that um, of all the people who are living with Alzheimer's, only about half are ever diagnosed by their doctor. And of that half, only about half are ever told their diagnosis. And so it's a really difficult situation in the first place because imagine living with all of the symptoms that we've been talking about, and yet you don't have a diagnosis. So 
we've heard stories from people who say, well, it was my marriage therapist who finally said, you need to go see your doctor because this isn't just normal marital dispute. Mm. There's something going on here. You know, this is a huge push for us because we want people to be informed and be able to cope with it in a way where they start planning. You know, you talked about paying for respite, paying for assistive living. It's very challenging when you're thrown in the midst of this to take the crisis and plan well. We'll talk on tomorrow's program about the racial disparities in illness and diagnosis when it comes to dementia. Jay, was it a challenge to get a diagnosis for your husband? Absolutely. And in fact, I was going to get divorced after 40 years of marriage. I thought he was being so mean, thoughtless, everything. I can't tell you enough. And then actually, I was going to ask Amelia about that before you brought it up, because I can't imagine having to figure out what was going on during this isolation if I didn't know what was going on in the beginning. And yes, we did have a neurologist who did not diagnose him, and my daughter and I even argued with him, and we had to go to find another neurologist before he got diagnosed. Well, I thought we might wrap up, Jay, with the tattoos that you got when you learned of your husband's disease. Two of them. What what do yes, they say? I did. Yeah, what do they say and what do they mean? So they face me because one of them says shut up. So if I have my arm, you know, on a table or something, I don't want other people to think I'm saying shut up to them. They face you. Okay. So that's why it faces me and it's when something goes wrong with him, you know, that he did something all of a sudden that he never did before or even in five minutes ago. So I want to tell him, you did this wrong or what are you doing that or blah, blah, blah. I need to shut up. It's not going to do any good to tell him anything and it's only going to make his feelings hurt or confused or make him more anxious. So you have to remember what the feelings are all the time. And then the other one says, it's not about you. So that when he is mean to me or says something or ignores me, things that you could take personally, I need to remember not to take it personally. It's not about me. So that one is a mirror on my hand and it has the words, it's not about you. Is it tough to remember that sometimes? Oh, yeah. Well, I probably need to remember that all the time, but I definitely have to remember it now. Well, Jay, Amelia, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Ryan. Jay Kephart of Denver is at home caring for her husband, Mike, who has Lewy body dementia. Amelia Schaefer is the Colorado Executive Director of the Alzheimer's Association. We've chosen the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. That's where we all read together and then discuss the book with the author on a virtual stage. Our latest pick will help us understand how human beings have categorized and oppressed one another using attributes like race. The book is called The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, history professor emerita at Princeton and formerly the director of its program in African-American studies. This selection was recommended to us at the start of the protests over racism and police brutality, a resource that can put this moment in America in context. Here's how The New York Times described the book, Painter's Accessible Study, 
shows that deciding who is white has always been heavily influenced by class and culture. So pick up The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, and then join us for a virtual event the evening of September 22nd. It's free, and you'll be able to ask the author questions. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. That's cpr.org slash turn the page. And finally today, music from a Colorado band that saw unprecedented success because of a Polish erotic drama. Everybody Loves an Outlaw is a musical duo based in Longmont by way of the Texas heartland. This tune went viral after appearing in Netflix's steamy movie, 365 Days. It now has 20 million streams on Spotify and clinched them a deal with Columbia Records. You took your own I See Red by Everybody Loves an Outlaw. The Fort Collins group recently signed a record deal after their song was featured in the film 365 Days. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters and CPR News.